This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and journalist Johan Hari. Johan came into the studio to talk about his book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And you're listening to 3 FM in Melbourne. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio author and journalist Johan Hari, who has written a couple of pretty big books uh, so far. First of all was Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, and the second of which we discussed a bit earlier in the year was Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Hi there, Johan, and welcome. I'm so happy to be back with you, Amy. You are my favourite Australian interviewer. Oh, thank you. Well, you're you my favourite You can check, I don't say that to anyone else either. So, <laughs> I'm not just saying this to suck up. But. That's hilarious. I love it. No, I don't think you would ever suck up. Um, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your writing. I think when I was reading through Chasing the Scream, which is what will be focusing on to begin with and obviously bring in some of the themes of lost connection which are very vital to this issue but when I was reading it it struck me how great a storyteller you are uh, in terms of painting a picture of this war on drugs not only how it has played out at the moment for all the different players involved but also how it began and it was really surprising to me the origins of this story not so surprising to me that it began in America But I'd really love to hear more about the bad guy in the story who, you know, (laughs) has has driven the plot for for probably the first at least one third of the book is uh, a man called Harry Anslinger. Yeah, if, if most people, if we stopped them in the streets of Melbourne and we said to them, why were drugs banned in the first place? They would assume, I think, what I assumed, which is they were banned for the reasons people would give now. If you ask someone in the street why are drugs banned, they'd probably say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs, we don't want people to become addicted. It was fascinating to discover that's not why drugs were banned across the world. And, and I opened the book um, with, the st- with, uh, with a scene that I think some people at first think, well, why is a book about the war on drugs opening like this? In 1939, in a hotel in midtown Manhattan, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked onto a stage... And for the first time, she sang a song called Strange Fruit. A lot of your listeners will know it. It's a song against lynching. It's the idea that in the South, there's a strange fruit that hangs from the trees, which is, of course, the bodies of murdered African-American men. And that night, Billie Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was run by a man called Harry Anslinger. And it basically said, stop singing this song. And that sounds weird, right? Why would a narcotics bureau be telling Billie Holiday what she can and can't sing. Um, so the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was, um, w- was a department that had originally been the Department of Alcohol Prohibition. And a man, a government bureaucrat called Harry Anslinger, takes over that department just as alcohol prohibition is falling apart. And he wants to keep his department going. So he, he effectively invents the modern war on drugs. And he builds it around two groups he really hates – One is African-Americans, Latinos and Chinese people. Um, He's such an extreme racist that even at the time his senator said he was so racist he should have to resign because he used the N-word so often in official memos. Um, And the other group he really hated was people with addiction problems. 
And to him, Billie Holiday is a symbol of everything he hates, right? Mm -hmm. She's an African-American woman resisting white supremacy. And she's uh, got a heroin addiction because she was horrifically raped as a child. In fact, prostituted as a child. And she was trying to deal with the grief and the pain of that by anesthetizing herself. And when... Harry Anslinger tells her to stop singing this song. Billie Holiday said, effectively said, screw you, I'm a free person, I'll sing whatever I damn well please. And that's when he resolves to destroy her. He, he hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to follow Billie Holiday around, so he employed a guy called Jimmy Fletcher to track her everywhere she went. And Billie Holiday was so amazing that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life, he felt really ashamed of what he did. He arrests her. She's put on trial. The trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday. And Billie Holiday said that's how it damn well felt. She's sent to prison for two years. But the cruelest thing is what happens next. When she got out, at that time, you needed a cabaret performer's license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. They make sure she doesn't get it. They take away singing from Billie Holiday. Can you imagine a crueler thing? In that situation, of course, she relapses. She, she has very hard um, alcohol and heroin problems. She, she goes, at one point, she collapses in New York. She's taken to hospital. The first hospital won't even take her because she's got an addiction problem. The second hospital will. Um, and, and, and on her way into the hospital, she says to one of her friends, Maylie Dufty, um, that the narcotics agents were going to kill her in the hospital. Don't let them. She was right. Um, I spoke to the last surviving person who'd been in that hospital room. They chained, even though she was diagnosed in the hospital with quite advanced cancer, they handcuff her to the hospital bed. They, um, they don't let her friends in to see her. They take away everything she had. Um, she starts to go into withdrawal because she doesn't have any heroin in the hospital. And her friend Maylie managed... Which, and withdrawal is quite dangerous if you're as physically weak as she was with cancer. Maylie, her friend, manages to insist that she's given methadone. She starts to physically recover, and then the narcotics agents cut off the methadone, and she dies the next day. And to me, this story tells us so much about what the drug war is about. It's always been a pretext. Look, you can't enforce the drug laws. Half of all Australians have broken the drug laws. You can't put half of your country in prison, right? Uh, So what is it? When is it used? It's used to crack down on the groups we want to persecute anyway. Why are Aboriginal Australians hugely disproportionately uh, imprisoned and arrested for drug, uh, so-called drug offences, for example. So th- the, the drug war has always been about this from the start. It's actually always made addiction worse, like it did with Billie Holiday. Uh, I think it tells us so much about the drug war. And the other thing, I'll just say quickly about that is, mm. I think it also tells us something about resistance to the drug war. You know, Billie Holiday never stopped singing that song, no matter what they did to her. She would go to the parts of the Deep South where you didn't need a license. She would sing it. People would throw bottles at her. She never stopped, right? Billie Holiday never stopped being addicted. Um, she, she, in this culture, we tend to only tell one heroic story about people with addiction problems, which is that they stop using drugs. And that is indeed a heroic story for many people. Um, but, you know, Billie Holiday never stopped. And she was still a hero. And she still did amazing things. And she still inspires people all over the world every day. Yes, and that was um, one of the stories that was shocking. I was a massive fan, still am, of Billie Holiday and I had absolutely no idea of the personal struggles that she had because her voice and the way she presents is so defiant and so confident and you just possibly couldn't see on the surface what's happening. And what really struck me was that as a child, she essentially brought herself up. I mean, she really didn't have that loving, supporting, caring environment around her. She was already behind in terms of having any chance at life at the beginning. Yeah, I, th- I thought about this a lot when I was tracking down people who knew Billie Holiday and going through all the archives about this. And I thought about her the other day when um, 
when Aretha Franklin died and Barack Obama said in his tribute to Aretha Franklin something like, in Aretha Franklin's voice, you can hear all the joy and all the pain of American history vibrating. I think that's true of Billie Holiday as well. Yes, absolutely. And Johan, let's take a step back a bit as well in terms of the access to drugs that Americans had before we've started this war on drugs, before um, Harry gets on his crusade there was a really quite an ease of access to at least low dose or mild versions of these drugs that they then banned, such as heroin, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's interesting because this is something that was really important to me for kind of personal reasons. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not not being able to. And I didn't understand why then because I was too young. But as I got older, I realised we had addiction in my family. And so when I started researching the book about, God, eight years ago now, seven or eight years ago, I was really concerned about the people I loved and I, and I was trying to think about how I could help them. So for the book, I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I didn't realise how big it would be at the start. I ended up going over 30,000 miles. I wanted to sit with people whose lives have been affected by the war on drugs and the alternatives to the war on drugs in all sorts of ways, from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn to a, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel to a scientist who spends a lot of time seeing if mongooses like to eat hallucinogens. Um, <laughs> and and I, learned, I learned lots of things, but... I was trying to think a lot about, well, what we're doing clearly isn't working. But I was trying to think about what are the alternatives. So I went to the places that pursued the alternatives, like Portugal, where they decriminalised all drugs, Switzerland, where they legalised heroin. But I was also interested, well, what was the situation before we banned drugs? And exactly as you say, the, the, until just over 100 years ago, opiates were sold in pharmacies most popular way of consuming opiates was something called mrs winslow's soothing syrup um which does indeed sound soothing yeah um the uh, i mean coca-cola has that name for a reason it contained uh, coca uh, which of course is what cocaine is made out of um there's a whole um there was a whole array of legal products and there were some problems associated with them it's important to say um but what's interesting to see is when drugs were banned the problems massively went up. Um, firstly, there were far more deaths because if you're taking a contaminated mm. product sold by criminals, that's going to be more dangerous. Pill testing is the, the, what's happened here at the weekend is a, a very good illustration of that. Um, uh, uh, an illegal product is much more dangerous than an illegal product. Of course, drugs don't vanish when you ban them. They're just transferred to armed criminal gangs. Mm. Um, and that causes a whole array of problems. There's violence between the criminal gangs. There's, there's a whole battery of problems that are suddenly born in that moment when, when Anslinger champions the, the banning of drugs. Yes, and I guess the point there is that not only was the dosage controlled, but as you said, the quality of the drug was controlled because it was through a pharmacy, it was through legal means. And nowadays, you wouldn't really, I'm guessing, be able to verify just what is in the different drugs people are taking to such a strong degree and have confidence in what you're taking. Absolutely. Everything is made more dangerous when something is controlled by criminals. We can't send health and safety inspectors into the, <laughs> no. like, the bowels of whoever's smuggling the cocaine into Australia, right? No, we can't, no. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about the types of racial motivations that were mixed up in all of this because certainly it seemed, you just mentioned there, um, the types of marginalised groups that were vilified and um, used really to say that these drugs need to be banned 
like they were talking about examples that were clearly not um, how they've been portrayed. They were about, you know, the use of marijuana, for example, was the first uh, example, I believe, wasn't it? The use, it was kind of bleakly hilarious going through all these files that Harry Anslinger had. So he would say to his agents all over the United States, send me stories about what was really happening with cannabis. And so he, and he, he only would reward people who sent him the most extreme stories. So, you know, there was a, a, um, a boy called... When Anslinger was making the case for banning cannabis and he really championed it, there was one case in particular he massively championed and kind of spread out through Hearst newspapers, which is like the kind of Fox News of the day. There was In Florida, there was a, a young man called Victor Lycarta who hacked his family to death with an axe. And Anslinger said, this is what will happen when you use cannabis. Actually, it was revealed years later, this... This boy hadn't even used cannabis. Um, the, the, but the, some of the stories are kind of hilarious. So he would, um, <laughs> a lot of his agents would go to sit in jazz clubs and they would transcribe the jazz lyrics and they seemed to think that they were literal. So, for example, there's a song um, called That Ocean Man when he says, um, the lyric is, when he gets the notion, he thinks he can walk across the ocean. So the agent goes, people using cannabis believe they can walk on water. This will cause mass drowning across the oh United States. You know, these were the stories. There's one where he said, uh, you know, so when someone uses cannabis, um, five seconds will feel like they last 10,000 years. <laughs> that was a particular one. It's like, wow, that'd be worth trying if it had that effect, right? Although it's interesting, you know, to think about how removed from reality the drug debate remains. Yeah. That, you know, last the first time I was here in Australia in 2015, Tony Abbott was unfortunately the Prime Minister. And Tony Abbott made a statement, just in passing, just talking about ICE, in which he said, um, I, this way, I think this is how he put it, ICE gives you superhuman strength, he said. I thought... And it's incredible. No one in the room laughed. No one in the room says, what do you mean, Prime Minister? If there was, in fact, a drug that made humans superhuman, that would be something really worth investigating, right? But it's an extraordinary thing that the drug debate can be so removed from reality. Or think about what um, the Premier of New South Wales said at the weekend, you know. The people who died at that music festival Mm. would be alive if they'd had pill testing, right? Yes. Almost certainly. Everywhere where pill testing happens, happens in Britain, happens in the Netherlands. They always find some contaminated pills, and the people always throw them away. And if they'd taken them, they would have been badly injured or died. Mm. Um, and, and your Premier said, um, not your Premier, but the Premier of New South Wales said, um, there's no such thing as a safe drug. This just encourages drug taking. To me, that's like saying, uh, there's no such thing as a safe car. Let's not have seatbelts and airbags, right? It's, it's a bizarre logic that she would not apply mm. to any other situation in life. There's no such thing as a safe Big Mac. It'll make you fat, right? No. Should, we, should we not have any food inspectors? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre um, logic. It is. And one of the people I did interview a few months ago was Daniel Shamovitz, who's a plant biologist. And he raised the fact that, you know, our brains have cannabinoid receptors. And so therefore, when you take uh, marijuana, for example, that's why it has an effect. It also means that because you have those receptors in there, your brain also produces its own cannabinoids Mm. in a small amount. So Mm. they're actually already, to some extent, in our bodies. And everyone knows, you know, one, there's a phrase that Australia has a slightly better drug debate than, than some places where there's still a lot of problems. But I, one thing I really urge people to stop using is the phrase drugs and alcohol, as if alcohol is not a drug, mm, right? We yeah. all know, I think spreading the insights we have from alcohol across other drugs really helps us, right? So think about, and this goes to actually one of the things that most profoundly affected me that I learned in the research for my book Chasing the Scream, that let's think about 
Everyone listening to this show knows if you go into a pub here in Melbourne tonight and you look around you, the vast majority of people drinking alcohol will be doing it just to have a good time, right? To unwind at the end of the day, to get the courage to flirt with someone, whatever it is, yeah. right? And we also know there will be some people there who will have an alcohol problem, who need our love and support, not punishment and shame. Um, and, and what I was trying to think about is, with both alcohol and other drugs, why is it that some people get, some people like clean, some people I like love most, develop this terrible problem and other people don't? Mm. And actually, when I spent a lot of time with the scientists who worked in this field, it was quite startling to realise I had actually deeply misunderstood the addiction I had seen in front of me. So if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for the book, what causes, for example, heroin addiction, which was close to me, I would have looked at you like you were stupid and I would have said, well, the clue's in the name, right? Heroin is obviously yes. called, heroin addiction is obviously caused by heroin. Um, we've been told this story for 100 years. It originates with Anslinger um, and just before him, actually. Um, and it's become part of our common sense. So we think if we kidnapped the next 20 people to walk past the Triple R studios and like a villain in a horror film, we injected them all with heroin every day for a month. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. Um, and they'd have this incredible physical hunger for the drug. Mm. And that's what addiction is, right? That's what I believed. That's why we call it being hooked, right? Chemical hooks. Um, first thing that alerted me to the fact that something not right about that is when it was explained to me in Britain, if you step out into the street and you get hit by a truck, God forbid, you'll, you'll, you'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's much better heroin than you're going to score on the streets because it's medically pure. Mm. If, um, if you break you up in Britain, you're, you're given that diamorphine for quite long periods of time. If any of your listeners, and I'm sure lots of them do, have a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken a lot of heroin. If what we think is right, that addiction is just caused by the exposure to the chemical hooks, what should be happening to all these people in hospital in Britain? Significant numbers of them should be trying to score on the streets when they leave. This never happens. Right? Mm. It's been studied carefully. This is so weird. When I learned it, I thought, how can this be right? I couldn't understand it. I, I frankly didn't believe it for a long time. Yes. And, and I only began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and met an incredible man called Professor Bruce Alexander, who's done an experiment that has really transformed how we think about addiction across the world. So Professor Alexander explained to me, this theory of addiction we have that it's caused by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners could try them at home if they feel a little bit sadistic. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks. Mm. So there you go, right? That's, that's our story. But in the 1970s, Professor Alexander was looking at these experiments and he said, well, hang on a minute. We're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? Um, uh, they've got loads of friends. They've got loads of coloured balls. They've got loads of cheese. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat could want in life, mm. they've got in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So they go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful 
to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful. There's lots of human examples I'm sure we can talk about mm. but, but, uh, and that I've learned about. Um, but to me, the, the core lesson of this is that the heart of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. Hence your book, Lost Connections. <laughs> and... I think there was a a quote that uh, stood out to me in your book about this very topic, which was from one of Billie Holiday's friends, Michelle Wallace, who said, people think sometimes people use drugs because they're bad or evil. Sometimes the softest people use drugs because they can't take the pain um, and anguish, presumably, of everyday life for various reasons. And one of the reasons that you bring up and that has been shown to be an issue in studies is childhood trauma. Yeah, there's this incredible research by a man called Dr. Vincent Felitti. And I, I found this quite difficult to learn about. Um, I'll tell you the story of how he discovered it because I think it's kind of amazing. And for a minute, you're going to think, why, why is Johan telling me this? What's this got to do with addiction or depression or these subjects but it led to an incredible breakthrough Mm. so in the mid-1980s in san diego in california this doctor vincent feliti is um given a job to do kaiser permanente are the big not-for-profit medical provider in that city and they approach him and they said look we don't know what to do every year the obesity crisis is getting worse and we're trying loads of things and nothing's working. We're giving people diet plans. They're just getting fatter and fatter. What are we going to do? Um, so they gave him a quite big budget and they said, just do blue skies research. Just figure out what the hell we can do. Mm. So Dr. Felitti started to work with 250 extremely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he's interviewing them. And one day he has what seems like, and in some ways is, a quite stupid idea. He said, what would happen if really obese people literally stopped eating and we gave them, like, vitamin C injections so they didn't get scurvy and we gave them all the things that you need? Mm. Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body and, and in fact, lose weight and get down to a a normal weight? So they started to do this, obviously, with loads of medical supervision. And in one sense, it worked. So there's a woman, I'm going to call her Susan, to protect her medical confidentiality, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. It's incredible, right? Mm. Her family are telling Dr. Felitti he saved her life. She's thrilled. And then one day something happened that no one expected. She cracked. She ran to KFC. She starts obsessively eating. And Dr. Felitti called her in and he said, Susan, what, what happened? And she looked down. She said, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, well, tell me about that day. Did anything happen that day? Turns out that day something had happened to Susan that had never happened to her. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, not in a predatory or awful way, but a man had expressed sexual interest in her um, and, and she'd felt really frightened. Dr. Felitti said to her then, or I think at a later session, he said, um, Susan, when did you start to put on weight? In her case, it was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9, didn't happen when you were 13? Was there anything that year? And Susan looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the program. He discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, which is obviously much higher than the general population. He's like, what was going on here? Susan explained it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked and that's what I want to be. That this thing that seemed irrational, and in one sense, of course, is very bad for you, was performing a protective, positive function. Um, but this is a small study, right? It's 250 people. It's such a weird result that Dr. Felicity thinks this can't be right. So he goes to the Center for Disease Control, the big body that funds medical research in the US, and he got funding to do a massive study. Everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente in San Diego over a whole year 
Um, don't matter what for, broken legs, schizophrenia, anything in between, was given a questionnaire. First part of the questionnaire asked, um, did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Things like obesity, and then they added addiction, um, suicide attempts, depression, other things. Mm. When the figures were calculated out by the CDC, people were just astonished. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed or addicted. But when you got into the multiple categories, the figures were remarkable. If you had six of these categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. It's incredible. And I remember when I, when I went to meet Dr. Felitti in San Diego, the first time I interviewed him, I remember walking out. He's a really admirable person. If you met him, you would really like him. I remember walking out and feeling full of rage towards him, like almost shaking with anger. And I was thinking, why am I, why am I so angry with this man? What's going on here? And, um, you know, as you, know, as you said, my, my, my book, Lost Connections, is about depression and uh, why we're having a depression epidemic. And I go through the, nine, the scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression. And... You know, when I was a child, I'd experienced some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. And I'd never thought about that as being related to my own depression, which perhaps sounds stupid now. I, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to integrate it into my biography. I didn't want to give the mm. power to this individual to think they were still playing out in my life. But one of the reasons I'm glad I stayed with learning about this is because of actually what Dr. Felitti discovered next. So... When people had indicated on these forms that they'd experienced childhood trauma, their doctor was told, next time they come in, don't call them back, but next time they come in, um, say to them something like this, I see that when you were a child you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened. That should never have happened to you. Mm. Would you like to talk about it? About 40% of people said I don't want to talk about it. But most people did want to talk about it, and they wanted to talk about it for an average of five minutes. And then it was random, randomly assigned. Some of them got told, you can talk about it with a therapist. I can refer you on to a therapist if you want. What was incredible was just that five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, this should never have happened to you. Mm. That alone led to a really significant fall in problems like depression. And the people who were then referred on to a therapist had an even bigger fall. Um, and what this tells us is part of a growing body of evidence from people like Professor James Pennebaker, it's, it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. And if you give people safe places to release that trauma, exactly what Billie Holiday never got. In fact, she got the opposite. She got shame, punishment, um, more aggression, abuse from the, the state. Um, that, that, then that, that, that is an anti-addiction policy. That is an anti-depression policy. And I thought about that a lot, funnily enough, here in Melbourne. Um, yesterday I met an incredible woman, in, who some of your listeners will know her, a woman called Judy Ryan. Um, so Judy Ryan moved back to Richmond in 2012, and there was a lot of chaotic street use in, in Richmond at that time. Um, near her street, a woman collapsed between some, well, between some cars, was, was using, and, and had um, injected herself and had hit an artery and actually bled to death in, in, in the street. And this woman had young children, and what tends to happen in areas where there's 
chaotic street use and there's a proposal for something that would actually reduce those deaths and help those people like a supervised injection site is generally the local people saying no we don't want it here we don't want these disgusting people blah 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 you imagine the terms they use um we don't want them here get it out of here judy ryan um did the exact opposite she said we absolutely should have a supervised injection site here these are our friends these are our neighbors these are people who need help um, and with a gr- another group of incredible people in Richmond, they formed a group to campaign for a supervised injection site in their area. Mm. And they went door to door, they persuaded people, they appealed to people's sense of goodness and decency and kindness. Um, and they succeeded. They got a supervised injection site, opened 11 weeks ago. It's already saved lots of people's lives. It will save... I've been to supervised injection sites all over the world. The scientific evidence is overwhelming. They save people's lives. They help them turn their lives around. And to me, that's such an extraordinary model. I don't know anywhere else in the world other than Melbourne where there were people who did that. Mm. These people are just heroic. And it's, again, a sign that, you know... I know you think about this a lot as well, Amy, that at the moment in the world, your listeners don't need need to remind them events are being defined by people who appeal to the absolute worst in us to hatred, fear and rage and I think what what happened here in Melbourne is a beautiful kind of counter song to that right it shows Mm -hmm. that also when you appeal to people's love and kindness and decency and capacity for connection um, you can prevail in really extraordinary ways and there's been other examples I'm happy to talk about if you want about here in Australia of some of the most moving and important moments of resistance to the global drug war Yes. Well, I would like to talk about compassion and love and care because that's really a big part of the solution and a big reason why some countries who have brought in far more progressive policies than just the punishment as a deterrent model have actually succeeded. Um, I know there are a couple of countries you've looked into that have made huge strides in terms of dealing with this issue in a totally different way and that does draw on the best elements of humanity, uh, such as that sense of empathy and love and care, and that when you do provide an environment of stability, care and controlled use, that some people who are addicted to drugs can come around to the position that they don't really need those drugs anymore. Yeah, I think the uh, most people, even quite conservative people who are naturally kind of, you know, authority and law and order minded, can see that what we've done hasn't worked, right? Mm, it's just so obvious. Um, but understandably, they are. A f- there's a general public mood, which is what we've done hasn't worked, but what's the alternative? I think too often the alternatives are discussed. People say, what's the alternative to the war on drugs? We talk about it like we're at a philosophy seminar and we go, well, how would that work? What would we do? And we talk in this very abstract way. And I, went, I was like, oh, right, there are in fact countries that have done this. I'll just go there and see what happened. So I'll give you an example. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is remarkable. And every year they tried the American way more, arrested more people, punished more people, shamed more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and said, look, we can't go on like this. What are we going to do? So they decided to do something really radical, something nobody had done in more than 70 years. They said shall we, like, ask some scientists what we should do? <laughs> so they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Hua Gulao. And they said to them, you guys go away, figure out what would solve this problem, look at all the evidence, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. So the panel went away, looked at Rat Park, loads of other pieces of scientific evidence, 
and came back and said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to crack, the whole lot, but, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, shaming them, arresting them, trying them, imprisoning them, which is incredibly expensive, take all that money and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it was a mixture of things. Some of it was rehab, some of it was psychological support. Most of it was about very practically changing people's lives. For example, say you used to be a mechanic. They'll go to a garage, they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages, much cheaper than sending him to prison. Um, The goal was to say to every person with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, it had been in place for 13 years and the results were in. According to the best research in the British Journal of Criminology, um, addiction was massively down. Overdose deaths were massively down. HIV transmission was massively down. Street crime was massively down. Mm. And one of the ways you know it works so well is that virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. Um, I went and interviewed a man called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalisation at the time. He was the top drug cop in Portugal. And he said, you know, understandably, he said, surely if we decriminalise all drugs, we're going to have a huge increase in drug use, we're going to have a huge increase in children using drugs, we're going to have all sorts of problems. Mm. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years prior to the decriminalisation making people's lives worse when he could have been making people's lives better. And I think this is something we... This is a, a shift in the debate we have to have. What we've been doing up to now, what you guys have been doing in Australia, what we've been doing in my country, is we've been copying the places that have failed disastrously. Um, everywhere in the world, and I went to many of the places where policies are built around shame and stigma and punishment, addiction problems get worse. Right? I went out with a group of women in Arizona for my book Chasing the Scream who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them and jeer at them. Right? What happens to those women? It's not accurate to say just that that policy doesn't work. It makes their addiction worse. They're even more traumatised mm. and more broken when they get out. Everywhere in the world where they have moved to policies based on regulation, order, love and compassion... It's not a silver bullet. They've still got problems in Portugal and Switzerland, but there is a massive improvement, such a massive improvement. So, for example, Switzerland um, legalised heroin for people with addiction problems. Um, It's given to them in a clinic. Since then, there have been zero heroin overdose deaths, not one. Huge fall in street crime. Swiss people are really conservative. My dad's from there, so, you know, I know the country pretty well, and my Swiss relatives make Donald Trump look like Gandhi. And, um, (laughs) and, and, And yet... Once Swiss people had seen this in practice, they had a referendum. 70% of them voted to keep heroin legal just because they saw... Apparently they just saw the falling crime was so big, right? Mm. And they, So this is, this is a pattern I've seen all over the world. Um, when people propose reforms when it comes to drugs, at first it is extremely controversial, and then people see it in practice. Yeah. And the controversy... Go, I mean, I'll give you a, an amazing example from here in Australia, I think. I think this is perhaps one of the perhaps the most heroic moment in the resistance to global drug war, certainly in the top five. In the mid-1980s, in Sydney and King's Cross, there was a doctor called Alex Wodak uh, who was starting to see patients with HIV, AIDS. Um, So it was clear by then it was a blood-borne problem, and it was also clear, therefore, it was going to disproportionately affect two groups, gay men and, um, and injecting drug users. 
they knew what to do about gay men. Although, of course, there were people who said, don't do it. These are disgusting perverts. You know, all the terrible things that people said. Mm. We've been written out of history now, but people really said maybe it's good if they all die. They're all perverts. Maybe this is God's judgment. Quite mainstream people said this. Um, but we knew what to do about gay men. You distribute condoms and you have public health information. No one knew what to do about injecting drug users. Mm. And Dr. Wodak one day had an idea. He was working with an amazing group of nuns and with some nurses. He said, maybe we should hand out clean needles. Um, this was illegal in Australia at the time. Um, he said, maybe we should hand out clean needles and we should tell people about that it's transmitted in the blood. And um, so they just went and bought a load of syringes with their own money and they started handing them out. And they explained it to drug users and drug users themselves started handing them out. Incredible drug user activism. And at the time, there's a massive scandal about it, right? Yeah. People say this man is facilitating drug use. These people don't care about their lives anyway. They, they want to die. That's why they're addicts. They're not going to use clean needles. It's ridiculous. You're just promoting. You're just making it easier for people to, to be junkies, is the phrase they would have used. Mm. Um, the police come to see Dr. Wodak and they said, you've got to stop doing this. You're breaking the law. And Dr. Wodak said, but do you understand this? This is an epidemic that will spread out. Even if you don't care about injecting drug users, and you should... This is an epidemic that will spread out from them through the country. He had four young children. He said, do you understand this? HIV, AIDS could become endemic in Australia, as it in fact has done in countries that didn't do this, places like um, Kenya and other countries. He said, We've, if we don't, this is our one chance to stop an epidemic. Mm. And the police said, look, we, you seem like a nice man, but we have to enforce the law. They kept threatening to arrest him. He would have lost his medical licence. Um, in the end, he's called to see the Minister of Health. Minister of Health says, you've got to stop doing this. Um, and Alex said, no, I'm not going to stop doing this. And as he, when he left the meeting, he got into the lift and the public health advisor got in behind. He'd been silent in the meeting. And the public health advisor just said to him quietly, whatever you do, don't stop. Because of this incredible moment of courage by Dr. Wodak and all the people in King's Cross, the drug user activists, the nuns, the nurses, um, many amazing people there, that was one of the first pieces of evidence we had in the world that distributing clean needles saves people's lives. It prevented an epidemic here in Australia. Um, and that then spread across the world, that model. Mm. If, if it hadn't been for that incredible courage here in Australia, that model may well never have spread. Certainly it would have spread later and many more people would have died of AIDS, um, mm. injecting drug users and others. And to me, that's, a, again, a, a great Australian model because, you know, Australians are pragmatic people. This is not a moralistic society. Um, Australians, I think, are compassionate people when they're appealed to in the right way. Judy Ryan's amazing work here in Melbourne has shown that. Um, I think this is a place that could really be one of the breaks in the chain in the global global drug war. There are very few... It's very striking to me. Whenever I come to Australia and I do media, the producers always say... I always get a producer who says something like, who can we get to be the other side of the debate? Because mm. they can't find anyone who will go on television and defend the policy that your government is enforcing. That's a sign of how hollow the Australian war on drugs is, that no yeah. one will come on TV and defend it, right? Yes. And yet... Every day, it continues to arrest people who are really vulnerable, continues to imprison people, mm. continues to leave drugs in the hands of armed criminal gangs. That is a sign that people listening to this program can tear down this, this war on drugs. And there's really important activism 
happening here. And I really urge people to look up Greg Chip's organisation, Drug Policy Australia. I really urge people to look up the fantastic work that Uniting Church in in Canberra has become the first church in the world to call for full decriminalisation of drugs. An amazing moment. I was just there meeting with them in Canberra. Mm. There's wonderful groups like Unharm. There's a Judy's Amazing group um, in Richmond. There's amazing work happening all over Australia. I'm just saying, if you're listening to this program and you are frustrated, sign up for those organisations now. You can tear this thing down. Mm. Every person who joins that fight, it will end sooner. And every day we we bring it closer is a day we save huge numbers of people's lives, just like Dr. Wodak and the amazing people he worked with in King's Cross saved enormous numbers of people's lives. Yes. And it just does remind me that in the history of the war on drugs, doctors knew that this punishment approach doesn't work. And they knew, particularly in the case of cannabis, that it didn't have the effects that people were so concerned about, such as extreme violence. Uh, We know nowadays that there are some of those newer drugs that do affect people's behaviour in a range of ways and that there are medical professionals on the front line seeking to treat and help those who've become addicted to drugs but are really hamstrung in what they can do for these people and, of course, would be concerned for their health and their well-being. There would be parts of society already who certainly would support a different way of approaching this issue. But as we know, it is very difficult to get politicians to take a step up and to have the courage to do something that's really quite radical to certain parts of any society. I think that's really well put, Amy, and I think there's two things I think about in relation to that. So one is I'm gay, I'm 39, And I have seen things I never dreamed would happen, right? I recently showed one of my nephews who's 17 the things that were on the front pages of British newspapers about gay people when I was the age he is now. And he literally couldn't believe it. He said, did anyone call the police? That was how... Because the world has changed so much in 20 years. Thankfully. I I, I don't think I even heard the concept of gay marriage until Mm. I was 20 years old, right? Mm. Um, and, And it's important to say, every politician is constantly making a calculation. If I take this step... How much praise will I get and how much crap will I get, right? And at the moment, the balance is they'd get a little bit of praise from people like us and a whole lot of crap from the Telegraph and all these other places. Um, But that balance can change, right? Yes. They were making that calculation about gay people 20 years ago when no one, you know, which is why there were lots of anti-gay policies. And then what happened? A lot of brave gay people and a lot of brave straight people persuaded the people around them Mm. using love and compassion and humour and all sorts of things. And ordinary people change their minds, and that changed the calculation that politicians made. But um, it also makes me think about, and this will sound a bit weird if I say it, but actually, in Australia, you guys have a higher degree of agreement about what the goals of drug policy should be than a lot of other policies. So if you stopped in the street a Pauline Hanson voter and a Green voter... And you said to them, okay, if we were starting from scratch with drugs, making the laws about drugs, what do we want to achieve with those laws, right? Almost everyone would say, your Pauline Hanson person, your Green person would say, I think, well, we don't want people to become addicted, we don't want people to die, we don't want kids to use drugs, right? Actually, there's a very high degree of agreement about those goals, right? We all want those three goals, right? That's not true of a lot of things. If you said to somebody, what's the goal of tax policy, Right, I would say, well, you want a more equal society, you want to discourage pollution, all sorts of things. Mm. A lot of perfectly reasonable people would say, no, that's, that's not what we want. He said, what's the goal of immigration policy? There'd be really big disagreements. Yep. Actually, 
there's an extremely high degree of agreement about what we want to achieve with drug policy. The disagreement is about how we get there. And I think once you reframe it that way and you explain to people, you're not wrong to be afraid about some of these things. You're right to be afraid. There are risks and dangers as long as positive aspects of drug use. Um, But what we need to do is look at, okay, where have people... What are the effects of these things? Because we have tried... The one thing you can say in defence of the war on drugs is we've given it a fair shot, right? The United States has done it for 100 Mm. years. They've spent a trillion dollars. They've killed hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. They've killed... They've imprisoned millions of people. They've destroyed whole countries like Colombia. And at the end of that, they can't even keep drugs out of their prisons where they pay loads of guards to walk around the perimeter the whole time, which gives you a sense of how well that strategy, the fantasy that... And and again, it occurs here in Australia. This fantasy of the New South Wales Premier saying the solution to these people dying is just we'll just ban the music festival is there is there one person is there literally one person who thinks those people won't just go to another music festival yes, yeah. i mean it's where they'll also be able to get hold of drugs it's it's, it's ludicrous she, she can't mean what she's saying right um but that's someone who's afraid of the alternatives um and that's why we need to do a better goal of explaining what the alternatives mean you know which is not to do a kind of big philosophy seminar it's to say Here's a plane ticket to Geneva. Here's a plane ticket to Lisbon. Yeah. You know, let, let me tell you what these places are like. Let me tell you what happened there or Colorado or Uruguay or the many places that I went to that pursued um, drug policy reform. Yes, I know you have to go. So I'll just close it out. Um, you make an excellent point about the fact that this is really driven by the populations, the people. Portugal, thankfully, did have leadership, political leadership, but same-sex marriage here was achieved because a resounding majority of Australians had come to the position through huge amounts of campaigning by activist groups that, of course, people should be able to marry whoever they like. So I, I just think that's a really empowering thing that you've pointed out, that any change can happen with the strength, effort and determination of individuals, regular Australians, people listening to this show, um, anything can actually and change. Th- things that seem completely impossible. So in Lost Connections, I, right, when I get pessimistic about this, I think about a friend of mine. Um, so um, I have a friend called Andrew Sullivan, who's an America, British-American journalist. And in 1994, at the height of the AIDS crisis, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. This is before we had protease inhibitors or anything. And um, loads of his friends were dying. And Andrew decides to go to this little place called Provincetown in Cape Cod to die. And and he's there, and he decides he's going to write a book. It's going to be the first book proposing a really utopian, radical idea, an idea no one's ever written a book about. That idea was gay marriage, right? And he thought... I'm not going to live to see this. No one alive now is going to live to see this. Maybe somewhere down the line, someone's going to pick up this book, right? When I get pessimistic, I just imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew in 1994 in his little house in Provincetown, okay, you're not going to believe me, but 25 years from now, firstly, you're going to be alive. He would have been incredulous. Secondly, you're going to be married to a man. (laughs) Thirdly, I'm going to be with you when the the Supreme Court... um, makes a ruling that it's mandatory for every US state to introduce gay marriage and they're going to quote this book that you're writing now and the next day you're going to be invited to celebrate to in a white house that will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag oh and by the way the president is going to invite you to celebrate that he's going to be black 
right? That would have sounded like the most... Lo- I'm saying, so, like we're saying to Amy, 25 years from now, a transgender president is going to invite us to smoke crack with her in the Oval Office, right? <laughs> Not that that's what we want. I mean, the transgender president, yes, the, the crack, no. Um, it would have seemed ludicrous. It would have seemed like science fiction, right? Yeah. But it happened. Andrew lived to see it. Well, that's and- good too. Exactly. So we need to remember we are all the beneficiaries of reforms that seemed utopian. When Australians were the first people in the world to propose the weekend, that was a crazy yes. utopian idea. Yeah. I mean, you don't need me to mansplain this to you, but you know, when my grandmothers were the age that I am now, they didn't, weren't allowed to have bank accounts because they got married, right? Their husband had to have the bank account. Um, so we're all the beneficiaries of incredible progressive changes that seemed ludicrous and impossible at the start. And because people fought for them and didn't give up and didn't let themselves be discouraged, um, our lives have been transformed. Johan, you are so inspiring and oh. your passion is infectious. And I just absolutely appreciate the time that you've taken and also how much this clearly means to you as an issue and you've contributed so much already. And I just thank you for continuing to do that. It's really great. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. And um, anyone who wants any more information about um, the book about drugs can go to www.chasingthescream.com. Anyone who wants more information about the book about depression can go to www.thelostconnections.com. Yes. And listen to our interview and chat about Hooray. Lost Connections. Thanks so much again. Oh, thanks, Amy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.